Welcome to the Woke Buffalo Podcast with your host, Matt Meyer. Hey everybody, welcome to the Woke Buffalo Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Meyer. Thank you for tuning in today. It's a beautiful winter day, end of January, cold, but lovely outside. If you live in the Northeast right now, uh, it's a, get outside. There's some beautiful hiking in the area. Um, even though it's cold, get out there. Enjoy some of that fresh air. Our bodies, uh, our bodies crave it. I think if anything, during this last year, it's um, brought people a little bit out of their comfort zones as far as going on hikes and going outside and exploring. And we do live in such a beautiful area. There's so many natural places to uh, to enjoy year round. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting some winter hikes in with my family and myself. Well, enough of that. Um, I want to introduce uh, our guest today, Steve Helmicky. Steve is hard to explain uh, over talk, um, me trying to explain to him. Steve is um, a world-renowned coach, powerlifter, um, poet, actor, um, healer, all of those things. He has an amazing story. Um, I literally don't have enough room to even talk about all the things Steve has done and his business, which is called Primordial Strength Systems. So I went out to visit Steve and interview him. And uh, Steve and I have known each other for probably 10, 12 years now. And we've had, we've had the, uh, really the, the chance to, to train together a few times. Um, we've done some work in this Russian martial art called Sistema, which we'll get into a little bit. Steve really is, um, separates himself from a lot of other people in this business, not only from the, the science that he uses as a strength coach, but his philosophy, which is really cool. I think everybody's going to really enjoy this. The, the last 30 seconds of this podcast, uh, got cut off. I totally lost track of time. Steve and I were just like chatting it up and I realized that um, he didn't give a chance to um, tell where you could find Steve. So I'll take that chance for him now. Um, Primordial One on Instagram, PrimordialStrengthSystems.com. His gym is in Elma. He's got such a cool place. Um, I said in the podcast, you really have to go experience the, uh, the, the, the gym and his center and Steve to really get a full uh, to really get a full grasp of what he's doing, um, but I think everybody's going to enjoy this podcast. I sure as hell did. There are some f bombs getting thrown around, so if you uh, are sensitive to words, uh, just take that into consideration. Uh, thank you for supporting this podcast. Um, if you guys haven't heard already, we have an amazing sponsor called Buffalo Cryo. Buffalo Cryo is a cryogenic center in downtown Buffalo, and I've talked about in length about the benefits of cryotherapy. Um, I've been doing cryotherapy now pretty religiously for the last couple months, not only at Jake's center, but also in my own garage using a cold tub, which I've been documenting uh, via my Instagram page. But Jake and Pat have an amazing uh, cryogenic center downtown, probably the best in the area. If you haven't experienced cryogenic uh, therapy, talk to them, check it out. Uh, use the coupon code WOKE15, which will give you 15% off on any cryogenic sessions. Yes, even in the middle of winter, our bodies can benefit from this. Um, and it's just such a great mind-body experience. Everybody should do it. So check it out again, WOKE15 at Buffalo Cryo. Uh, last but not least, last but not least... Um, thank you for supporting this podcast. If so desired, leave a five-star rating and a comment on maybe how this podcast has helped you. Uh, share it with a friend. That's the best way to grow this podcast. And it gives me some great feedback on uh, guests to have and things like that. But uh, like again, much love. Thank you very much. I get messages every week uh, about the podcast and how it's being enjoyed by people. So I'm really excited about that. So without further ado, Steve Helmicky, Primordial Strength. You guys are going to fucking love this interview. 
And um, remember, stay woke. All right, brother. It's so good to see you. It's so good to spend time in your place. Um, it's uh, such a welcoming place, and it's so unique. I cannot even explain it over uh, <laughs> over audio. You have to come and see it for yourself. So thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me interview you. Well, thanks for the opportunity to uh, sit and speak with you. Um, it's incredible what you're being able to do with something like this, and I'm honored to be a guest. Yeah, I went a little bit in uh, the intro that I recorded on my own. I talked a little bit about... Uh, how we met and just a very brief like description of what you do, which is not going to be anything like you can tell the story. So um, start with your origin, Steve. Start with, you know, uh, your childhood and what kind of brought you to this place. So great story about uh, being able to really move upward um, in society based on education. So I was brought up by uh, two very hardworking, strong parents who... Um, demonstrated a hard work ethic. There was high expectations. Uh, we were brought up uh, very steeped in Catholicism, but more of the demonstrated aspects of it, of how you treat other people. So really, truthfully, the Sermon on the Mount, as opposed to, um, you know, just kneeling in church on Sunday. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, so that was always a driver for me, helping people. I was always for the underdog. Um, aspects of growing up on the East Side when I was young were, were very difficult. So that... Um, some aspects of that violence balance with the Catholicism led us to martial arts, led us to training, led us to, you know, wanting to do Sistema and other things um, that in some ways became a lifelong journey. My first weight set was actual concrete sand weight set from brand names on Walden near the old Thruway Plaza that was put up in my attic. Um, wow. My father bitched constantly about uh, the noise and threatened to take it away, but uh, that's how I started with it, basically a 110-pound uh, weight set. You were, I, like, you were like two then, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not quite that young, but um, nine-ish. Nice, okay. nice. So, were you, um, uh, growing up on the east side at that time, were you a minority? Or was it a... So, so there were a couple different switches. So when I was on the DP side near St. Stan's, we were, we were a minority then. Um, so an interesting point about this, because the, the racial battles are important. So a lot of things that people don't know is when we lived on Smith Street, my mother was almost killed by a black guy when I was two years old in our house. So some trauma related to that, but the interesting thing is we were never brought up uh, to be racist. So my best friend when I was a kid then was um, a young black girl. Um, we moved to uh, closer to the Chittawaga line into the east side, and so I grew up in the Bailey Dote area then, and then I played um, Little Luke football behind Emerson High School, so I was uh, only white guy on an all-black team. Um, got to learn a lot about... Um, both races upon both sides, and then yeah. secondarily, um, how to get along with other people and how to play under, um, you know, dire circumstances with not a lot of equipment or um, just a lot of coaches with heart. So then um, moved on, went to St. Joe's, um, always kept lifting. Uh, my foray deep into this business was, well, I was uh, a sophomore at St. Joe's. My uncle actually owned all the Nautiluses. Um, in Buffalo, and I and had a PhD work from at the time that was studying it. So I was had the good fortune of from the time I was a sophomore in high school to probably I was a senior in high school to actually work under a PhD. At that time, I didn't think it was going to lead to anything. I sure. just had an interest in training. Sure. Um, they were they were very the Nautilus group. They were very science heavy. Yes, that's a that was a that, that really set them apart. And truthfully, some of the equipment we still have on the floor, and nothing has been built better. So as you spoke about the, the facility and where we're at now is, I looked at it as everything that was truly relevant and had staying power from the 70s till now that's even pre-patented, all of those pieces should end up in a building. And this is just from my perspective, if you want to have the ideal format and the ideal gym, especially a lot of people that train now, um, even on some selectorized stuff, if you bring them back and put them on Old Nautilus, they're about... 70% weaker on that than they are on the other equipment. So you realize wow. like the difficulty of how that was made. Um, and what we study scientifically, like the variable method, what I'm trying to do in here, the speed of contraction over like 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. Nautilus built the variable method into the cam in the 70s. So a lot of what we're looking at from like a Soviet science standpoint and a foray into what we're trying to do 
future wise and how we train athletes a lot of it was already put into these machines way back when this is how forward thinking they were so from my perspective what i from what i'm studying um, it's pretty remarkable that somebody was that far ahead of the curve to what we were actually doing. The only thing that they didn't focus on is they were very um, bodybuilding type 1 fiber related and, and having a lot of high levels of um, delayed onset of muscle soreness, which is something we don't do. Sure, and we're sure. looking to just try to activate as much type 2B fibering on people as possible. Um, so then I stayed deep. After football didn't work out, I just um, started to join commercial gyms. Um, at some point, I was um, at the fitness factory on Delaware, and a kid named Marty Cardamone was working the counter, and he said, man, I've been watching, you're a really strong guy, you should go into a powerlifting meet. He trained me for like six weeks, I got ready, so the first run out, I squatted 620, bench 420, pulled 620 in my first meet, and then people were like, look it, you're going to be able to do a lot of things, so then the next meet out, I broke the top 15 in the United States, um, and then competed for 14 years post that. Um, didn't really think of doing this for a living on this level um, until I was approached by um, Demiris Johnson at Salem's at the time back then. He was doing the speed work um, and they had some CFL and NFL guys they wanted to prepare. They wanted somebody to come do the strength coaching in. I started to read the old Verkoshansky um, again and thought that we could actually bring something that was completely different from a scientific standpoint to how athletes were developed. So that was in 2007. And then we started a certification system that ended up in 10 school systems, the United States Marines, um, and then worked for the last 14 straight years in trying to compile as much of that information as possible. The readings put it into 56 books and like 100 supportive publications and now just looking to use that as a PhD thesis. So kind of like my life dream of the approach to strength and compression of mortality over time. I hope that didn't sound uh, completely off a lot no, of information. No, I mean, the first time I walked into this gym, I knew that there was something madly different. Uh, Maybe one of the first times we met, you know, I'm walking through and I'm stepping over, you know, all of these contraptions and tools. And then I walk to the back room and I see you had a whiteboard and I see your thoughts and poetry and fucking physics equations, you know, and then we're, you know, and then we're doing live blade training, rolling around in the grass. And I was like, okay, okay. You just had this, uh, this, this, uh, something about you that was just this warrior poet. That was the best way I could describe it. Uh, this warrior poet. When did, uh, when did you realize that it was more than just strength in conditioning, like your your look on life, and how did that? When did that start to form for you? Well, we were always very academically driven and pushed in our household. I mean, my mother was a great demonstrator of that. So we were forced to go to the library very young, at two, at three, um, and then uh, my first undergraduate degree happened to be in English literature, and at the time. Um, even though UB is considered this large, public, um, unfriendly institution, at the time it really was the Berkeley of the East. And so when I was there, I was, it was a top 25 English program. So I was taught by two Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, wow, wow. And then was lucky enough to win um, the Arthur Axelrod um, Award for Poetry as an undergrad. And then that just pushed me deeper and deeper. Um, into that balanced life. So when I look at it now from this perspective, I mean, it, there's a lot of intangibles put together, but it really is kind of carrying yourself like the old strongmen did. They were kind of cultured, they dressed a certain way, yes. they were very powerful people, but they were gentlemen. Yes. And I think that's, that whole way of carrying yourself a man is what appealed to me, and this is kind of um, what that's become. Uh, you know, there's a lot of power, there's <clears throat> a lot of strength, there's a lot of other things in here, but most of all, it's really treating people as humanely as possible as always and never taking advantage and so I, I really think that that's kind of been my uh, mantra I would rather have things cost me um, pain money or otherwise as opposed to that um, causing that to somebody else even somebody I don't know so that's kind of I've always been wired that way um, to help uh, maybe the person that um, no one wanted to help I love that. And, you know, you have uh, kind of this tagline is this primordial man. And I love that what it means. And I, you know, and it is that balance of being strong, um, but also being empathetic and being there to serve people. And that's kind of what I get when I come in here. And you have such a wide variety of clientele. I mean, you have 
you have people in wheelchairs, you have athletes, you have, uh, you know, special forces, uh, tactical guys. How do, how do you, how is that all wrapped in? Are you using the same, you know, without giving away your secret sauce? Is everybody looked at in that same level? So it's looked at, everybody's looked at it in this same level and that I, it's my obligation to meet you where you're at, regardless of where you're at. So from a system standpoint of developing something, I wanted the legitimacy of it to be to be applied to anybody. If somebody crawled in here, I should be able to apply aspects of what I'm doing and get the same tissue elasticity, the same movement, but touch a lot of them than I could get out of, say, somebody that we're trying to get from a high-level special operations standpoint. So there is a fundamental um, connection points to all of it, but the problems that you're faced with force the system to grow in certain, in certain ways. So... I just decided to do all of the clinical work um, on the floor myself just to have that largesse of clinical time. So even though doing it for 85 hours a week for 14 years and getting 60,000 hours of clinical hours, some people would say it's ridiculous. There's a better business model to hire other people underneath you. Why well, do 130 or 40 appointments by yourself a week? But the ability to change training on the fly um, based on past symptomatology, something that's just here, something that could be predicted for the future. Um, there's a lot of art, there's a lot of science in this, but there's also a lot of art in controlling volume and intensity on people. And I think you just, you can do internships, you can do some work, but the more clinical time you get applying deep science, the better you get and the better ability you have to apply it to other people that might even be uh, more imperiled as far as movement's concerned. Um, so I just look at those things as we won't reject anybody and that um, I will do my best even at this point in my career and stay up all night if I have to, to get you to a point um, where you actually you're feeling like you're being medically taken care of. So the, the foundational piece, like even the first page of the textbook, the Hippocratic Oath is in there. And so I really look at this from a medicinal standpoint. My responsibility is to do no harm to anybody, not fuck anybody up, excuse my language, um, and make sure that they're taken care of properly. I think uh, one of the things that's seeped into strength coaching and strength training is um, this high level of sloganeering, and people are really encouraged to believe that they can out-sloganeer their physiology. And as we know, that's not true. It creates a lot of injuries. And then the addendum services that are built into the training. So as much as I'm not so much a, um, a minimalist with the tools in here, yeah, yeah. I am a minimalist with the amount of stress you put on somebody's body. So it should be just enough to break down the muscle cell walls, just enough to grow, try to avoid the delayed onset of muscle soreness, and try to delay all the complications to come with overtraining people. I think the sloganeering aspects now, it's almost a badge of courage to um, you know, create enormous amounts of doms as a, um, as a badge of courage and even to get people into rhabdo, which is kind of crazy to me. So I, so from my perspective of doing this professionally, if you're doing that to somebody, it's like being a chef at a Michelin star restaurant and giving somebody food poisoning and bragging about it. Like you should not be banging people up on that level. Um, and some of that is the max effort performance that happens internally um, in strength facilities. So I never looked at, unless you're specifically trained to be a power lifter or an Olympic lifter or a strongman, those are your max effort events. Certainly they have to be demonstrated in the gym. But from an athletic standpoint, a general population standpoint, the athletic performance that somebody um, is training for is their max effort performance. So very little max effort work. Um, and I mean by, by that I mean, oh, absolute strength. Sure, sure. It's a, it's, it's a huge contraindicator with a lot of other things that are important to athletic movement it's become an easy way for strength coaches to kind of prove what they do, right? I put a box underneath somebody, you bring your kid to me, he squats 135 the first time, you, you know, you six weeks later you come back, he does two and a quarter off of it, the guy can brag that he put X amount of pounds on somebody's squat, but what is the conversion to that, to the athletic performance? Um, and it's pretty minimal. So the foundational piece for me from the old Russian studies, and so Verkoshansky is the person that I study Tremendously, and so they did longitudinal studies with 500,000 athletes over a period of four decades. So it really is true science. And one of the baselines is is that Poe absolute strength is actually contraindicated with sprinter speed. 
So the higher that raises, there's no correlation between a max effort squat and sprinter speed, but there's an enormous cor correlation in the jumping ability and their speed. So the question then becomes is what strengths are important to create movement? And so we know Poe is an absolute uh, negative indicator on strength, on speed strength, strength speed, and impulse force. So what I spend most of my time doing is regressing all the way back to abscissa. So most athletic movements start from a complete stop. So if we look at abscissa, what is the next thing that powers an athlete's body to move? And that would be impulse force. So the first thing we have to look at is, is how do we create the maximum impulse force in somebody um, that then leads to starting strength, speed, strength, strength, speed, and then your power base after that. But those small micro strengths are very, very important in developing people. And what I found over time is, if you train those numbers for those smaller strengths, and those are usually like 30% one rep max or less on all those things, so that kind of elasticity. Training that over time in, in cycles with a variable method of going, so imagine taking a 10% single, a 20% single, a 30% single, and say a 40% single, and then restarting that cycle at the beginning and looking at speed of contraction, speed of contraction, speed of contraction, speed of contraction. Once that speed of contraction slows down past a point where we're not getting the power output we want, we stop the athlete from moving. So that does a lot of things. That gives you an endurance of that firing power of the impulse force, speed strength, and starting strength. Um, it also, because of the repetition model, is not giving you DOMS, and it's giving you a variable enough meth of a variable enough resistance that it creates completely different cardiovascular outputs. So what we found is the conditioning level is way up on them without doing additional conditioning, so there's less load on the body. Um, we're reducing DOMS and we're activating the satellite cells as much as we can to create type 2B fibrin. Um, certainly there's a level of type um, 1 and 2A fibrin that needs to be on people for all that to balance out, but we're looking to minimize that because if we look at like the gene pool of top level athletes, most of the power-based athletes have just, they're, they're born with a high level of fast switch uh, fibers. So the question then in training is, is how can you develop that in most of the average people who are training with you through the most efficient training means? And then does that tissue lead to, a, to the most elastic tissue? So my belief is that that fibering is the most elastic tissue. So now when we look at elastic tissue, we look at um, the length of the tissue staying longer. So there's a difference between elasticity and flexibility. Flexibility doesn't have the same staying power as elastic tissue. So if we can build that tissue structure into people, and then that same tissue dissipates the most contact force, that mixed with breathing and movement, now you're again, besides getting a more powerful athlete, you're reducing the injury likelihood significantly of those athletes. So that's kind of how I look at um, somebody I'm training. Well, I remember when uh, I came back a few years ago and you, you put me through the workout, and it was how it was, um, well, it was short in duration, but it was very, it, it was um, programmed so interestingly. And it, it was really, it really was amazing. It was like I had a full loaded workout in a short period of time with no soreness. And today, just watching you coach some of your, you know, you had a couple athletes, you had a person, I was watching the movements and how explosive, and then you check in, I loved it, you're like, any pain? No, move on to the next. And oh, it was just, uh, it was just really, it, it was great to watch and see how different um, everything was and how focused they were on it. So I, I asked that question ad nauseum. So probably any session that lasts probably between 20 and 30 minutes, um, the clients are asked that between 50 and 60 times probably. I heard, I so heard that, that. that. That reporting ability over time is because people have been coached as a tendency Discomfort, to work through discomfort is one thing. When you start to be taught to, be, to work through joint pain and you're in, a, in missed positions, you're gonna create horrible things down the line. And this is just another one of those points where the sloganeering in this business has allowed people to push themselves to create enormous injuries. And there's different risks. And it's part of the, even though I come from that elite powerlifting background, I divorced myself from much of, 
of, of what I did and don't use it with my clients because it's a different risk level. What I found with most people that end up doing this is, is they stay committed to what they used to do and they try to force that down everybody's throat. There's an enormous risk to max effort work on those levels. A risk that actually even most athletes that say they want to take once the catastrophic event occurs post it, they're um, tremendously sorry that they did it. So, so I, I, have, I tell people consciously that, um, you know, especially if you're looking at your lifetime goals of strength, and I'm big on the compression of strength mortality, you should be the, there was a movement in medicine for a minute called compression of mortality that mm. kind of went away. So it, now it's about keeping people chronically ill and you know, you can build more for that. But if you look at compression of mortality, if you're tying a strength system to it, the, the compression of strength mortality should be in concert with that. So you should be the sickest at the last day, the weakest at the last day, uh, but yeah. it shouldn't be like yes. this. So I'm looking now, especially from the age I'm at, is, is what does the post-competitive athlete, which all the, with all the bang-ups you get, how is the transference um, of training occur, and how do you maintain as much of your explosive elasticity through the longest period of time in your life? And the only way that that can be done is really is brief, intense, but very focused training. And by intense, I don't mean to push them to the point that people vomit or get sick. No, it's, no. It, it, it's bringing them right to the brink before you would get that intracellular spillover. You don't get any of that delayed onset of muscle soreness. So if I look at it from an athletic standpoint, a special operations standpoint, if I train you on Monday, you should be able to fully participate in anything you would have to on Tuesday, 100%. Um, and I think a lot of that... Um, is, is not the case here and it gets sloppy because people stay on patterns and they don't adjust um, enough of the volume and intensity on the fly as necessary um, and then you run into trouble with people being banged up and then you have to add you know a million other things to your training so then you have to add supplementation with painkillers and all those other things all the cocktails yeah so I try to in that regard I am a, a, a minimalist you eat the best you can you stay hydrated um, and then you train a certain way um, over time, we'll certainly add more and more to that, but I think if you're looking at training script down specifically and you want to take all the other agent-based modeling out of things that affect training positively, there is in some ways a very specific way to train for longevity, speed of contraction. You know, there's different paths to go by if you elect to become a bodybuilder, if you elect to do anything that's related to just physical statuesque appearance. But if you're talking about the functionality of muscle tissue, um, it's hard to argue against type two fibering people as much as possible. Absolutely, um, and there's, I mean, there's great studies on uh, grip strength and mortality. Yep. I mean, and that right there, so that's a, that's a huge factor. I think um, with people at any age is to be able to, you know, create that tension and compression. Are what's your what are your thoughts? on the current state of strength and conditioning and fitness? <laughs> well, I just, so I, I only peek my head out occasionally. Um, so, I, so honestly, I have kept my, um, to myself mostly probably for the last 14 years and kept my head in very specific material. Um, I think you certainly can be, over, you can overread and be over-influenced by what's here. There's a big movement. So I'll step back for a second. If you're looking at making a, um, a system and you're looking at science from a 14-year period only occasionally during those periods do big breakthroughs come and then there's something that you can actually tell somebody a lot of it is the grind the grind the grind the grind what you're seeing now with the movements to get likes and get social media is, is people are putting up content every day like they're making breakthroughs every day and then there's a redundancy of, of what I would consider not so good information out there um, so I, I think it's People are more aware. There's more people involved in it. Do I think it's um, functionally better at what it's delivering? Uh, you know, in my opinion, and this is one guy's opinion. If you've already me, I would say absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, one of the so one of the key indicators is um, this would be a problem for me. The NFL still uses a two twenty five bench press um, as a determinant factor um, in assessing the ability to play football. So when we look at, so there's two problems with that. Number one is if you're looking at power output from people, people that rep a lot, there's no correlation to max effort movements on the other end or the speed of contraction of that. So most people that can do high reps, they can say that that's gonna be equivalent to them having a high output on the other end, but that's only on paper. Very few people can take it. The people that can move big weights and move things fast, 
usually are people that can perform one or two very fast reps and can repeat that 30 seconds over and over and over and over again. And what I'm finding is, is that people are married to, I mean, I believe the bench press is still kept in because if you ask most people in the street, most commoners, if somebody was strong, that's the question they would ask. But if you're looking at determining output from an athletic standpoint, I mean, it's considered the worst lift of the three in powerlifting even. So yeah, they're not sure. married to it, you know? Yeah. So my, so I don't understand why certain things are being used to measure, why certain things are being used as a performance standpoint. And strength coaches on that level need to actually be watching film. So I always looked at it this way. People knew we were training people by watching the film. So that's when I knew coaches, instead of me saying, well, you know, Steve Helmicky put 50 pounds on every guy's squat and we took a hundredth, two hundredths of a tenth of a second off of these guys 40 times or whatever other number it was more about people could notice how we moved how we hit how we recovered how we avoided contact on film I think if you get strength coaches to start to tie themselves into saying your performance is going to be based on movement on film and the primary activity that you're training people for I think you'd see a lot of the basically shit that we hold on to just fall off because it's um, it, it, it doesn't mean anything yeah, it's not. It's definitely not fluid, and it's it's uh, like a lot of other things based in uh, dogma, you know, and this this old train of thought, and you know, it's, the social media and the strength and conditioning world. I mean, we talked about this a little bit before. Is uh, you know, people are in a place where you know they're looking for these they're looking for these saviors at the, out there in the internet in social media, and they'll never. I don't think they'll ever find them. Did you have a mentor? Or two, uh, or three, you know, that you that you'd like to mention. Yeah, um, lots. Um, I think um, from a competitive standpoint, I mean, I train with the the best guys from here. I was lucky enough to be at Westside at one point. I trained with Mike Lazinski, Paul Childress, all those guys. We had a top level group, but along those ways, especially because of a person who had the kind of, uh, and I mean, severe performance anxiety I had, there were different mentors that appeared at the right time. So one of them is Fred Gelati. He's 80 now, still pulls 400 with two hip replacements. Wow. But when he was a younger guy, I met him when I was in my 30s. He was in his 50s. Um, he was a world-class lifter back then. So back in t-shirt days at 242, 550 bencher, 740 squatter, 720 puller. Tough old dude, kind of looked like Clark Gable. But he was the kind of guy where his ego never got in the way. So he would be able to whisper. Nice. Like, like he, was, he did this for me, which most dudes wouldn't would walk into place he would look and go you're the best built strongest person in here because you're going to win this meet and he would start everything that way and coming wow. from the exact opposite background of almost being like a hostage to can't mm. and that leading to performance anxiety that was a person that just by seeing him would change my ability to uh, perform so he's certainly at a high level and then the other people I mentioned that team of people I had so Michael Zinsky, Paul Childress those guys as much as there were pockets where there was big falling outs, and that's sure, what happens sure. when you're uh, when you're training together yeah. for all those for all those years on holidays and everything, <clears throat> the bottom line is to be able to assemble <clears throat> that kind of group of people and to have it continuously work for a decade. When I look back in retrospect, I was of, of great fortune to have that. Oh, um, that's amazing. So, and then I we took it on the road. So I got to from so from the gym perspective, like my first big win, Iron Island was the premier. Um, power gym in the country at the in the early to mid 90s and so that's where I broke out and got my first world record and, and, and broke out so to be able to do it in those storied places and then be exposed to those places I've been in so many of those gyms so when I went to put together I just remember like what struck me about guys that were really into this and put it together and so that's how we ended up kind of with um a smattering of almost every single decade in one building because um, there were so many things that just stayed with me after doing this for a lot of years that I just thought back to that there was nothing better than this 30 years ago. Um, and most importantly, the pullover. I, I think people have gotten away from doing pullovers and whether you do them with a dumbbell or a machine. Wow, we have not had one um, rotator cuff injury with any pitchers or any throwers all the way up the level of pro quarterbacks because the kids were started very early on doing pullovers uh, and that pec delt tie-in is such an incredible support structure for people that have to throw with velocity and I still 
of course there's other factors with tissue elasticity and, I lo- uh, and stuff like that. I love but the that. bottom line is I look at it that and if I could if I could pick one thing that saved us, that's been part of our warm up for athletes forever. So before you start training, you're getting that in almost on a continuum. That keeps all that open and that also helps your therapy people out. Now you have somebody that almost has all this opened up on a continuum. You start to do more soft tissue work, you're actually being able to get even deeper and better working as opposed to somebody that's just overthrown in this position and now has lost 20% of the mobility in a joint. I, I love that. I think uh, what's interesting that's happened too in the industry, and I was um, I was a little bit to blame for this, was this functional exercise movement. And um, I came to a place where I was taught or machines are bad functional movement because nobody there's no machines in in out in the wild and i i i was on that dogma for a while and then i caught myself it was making me it was making me very critical of people and then i started to learn more and unlearn and realize there is a place for everything and also, there's no bad movement. You know, it's how you perform those movements. Exactly. And I was a movement Nazi, man. I was like, oh, you can't do a crunch. But then I'm working with a jiu-jitsu guy who is spinal flexing a thousand times. Like, wait a minute, you can do a crunch. That's been one of my biggest light bulbs over the last 10 years is kind of unlearning that and being like, okay, like, it's all about how it's applied. And so it's funny you should say that. So we were Nazis on the other end where none of that should transfer over. Now I'm a very big advocate of being able to identify and examine small structural muscles that are a hindrance to large global speed of contraction movements. Um, you can bypass your goalie tendon and a lot of other things, but over time when you're moving um, large weights or people or large volume of sprinting, um, those small muscles and those small inhibitions and those motor skills are going to cause injury. So if you're not wise enough to clean those up and then add that to your speed of contraction work. So I think that's where we've learned and take, and take, take, take some steps backwards in that you know, you're, you're, you're doing your three major lifts and some assistance, but you're not doing any kind of stretching or mobility work or elasticity work. That was a bit foolhardy, you know? So now you're watching short strings, hamstrings get shorter and shorter on people yeah. that squat yeah. a certain way. Um, and, and that's what I'll say, Sistema, that portion of it, um, even though that was taken from some very old yogic um, stuff, the, those movements and that tension and relaxation stuff um, becomes super important, I think, over time and um, in adding that. That's something I wish we would have had much earlier, like dissipation of contact force between breath, dissipation of, of um, or excuse me, acceleration and deacceleration off of breath on a, on, a, on a field. So there's a lot of ways that that can be applied that I wish we had. That's, yeah, the Sistema stuff is amazing. I, let's unpack the Sistema a little bit. Okay. You know, I, um, I had heard about it for being in the martial arts community, but I was up in Toronto training with one of my mentors, uh, Steve Maxwell. Yes. And Steve had said, mentioned Sistema many times, and he started training in Sistema. So when I came back to Buffalo, I was like, wait, shit, I think Steve, Sistema. So that's, I w- that's how we got reconnected again. And I was, at, I was really, as I started to dig deeper into Sistema, I was really amazed at um, it, it is really a kind of way of life, yes. a philosophy. And I remember, I think you, you, you said this, and maybe you were quoting somebody and said, when you punch in Sistema or when you strike, every strike should be life-giving as well as taking away yeah. if needed. And I was like, okay, this is some, this is some fucking deep stuff. Unpack Sistema, your journey into it. and uh, So it was rough, man. I, I stumbled upon it while I was still a competitive powerlifter. They hated me. I brought a shitload of attention. And I didn't even know this, but just the from that style of training and that overpowering presence constantly, you don't realize the tension you bring in the rooms. It probably took me six years just to start removing that. I mean, I will, I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, they used to whisper in my ear, "Why don't you just fucking quit this? It's not for you," because I would get, um, 
I remember one time they said, you bring too much tension in the room. I said, what fucking tension? And they were like, that tension. Uh, we were like, dude. So tension I, on an energetic level. Yes. It, oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they pointed out to me, like, when you walk into a room, like, the shit just gets stirred up right away. And then they, it's the first time somebody, so growing up, it was very hard scrabble. It wasn't a lot of those battles, but I always looked at it as that wasn't my responsibility um, and this was the first time somebody told me, like, you have a responsibility. You, you bring that to the table. You might not say anything. You might not look at anything. But with the way you come in and carry yourself, you bring all that tension in. And it took me a long time to um, work to remove it. So that I'm grateful for because this is the one thing I'd say about it. You can say that it created a better fighter, that you can do great tactics or whatever. I can honestly say that without any bullshit that they actually made me a better guy. Yes, Yes, and and substantially, and I needed it. Like yeah. those camps, as much as time, you know, sitting and sleeping on a you know piece of clapperboard was a pain in the ass. Um, it was very very worthwhile for me. It, it I would give them the credit in this regard. It changed my life a lot. I'm a much better human being. Um, yeah, it was uh, watching you know and seeing the the advertisements for some of those camps and stuff. I'm like, these are some fucking crazy motherfuckers. But then once you introduced me to some of the work and Kevin did I was I, I was just really I was like this is so uh, it's so deep and rooted in uh, I mean the ancient uh, the Cossacks the yep. Cossack warriors yep and they have a whole healing tradition so just speak a little bit on you know the their system of you know combat and but their healing system is pretty unique so I would say that you really can't do the combatives without the healing what, I, what I've always loved about um and again, there's a lot of people that get their um, jollies off based on you know being associated with some kind of form of special operations or stuff like sure, that. Sure, sure. So you have to always be careful about taking those steps. But this is the first time I've seen people do anti-abduction work by not all the preventative measures, but what do you do at the end point? And so the healing really starts from the end point. So when you're tied up, when you're being whipped, how do you relax your body? Mm. So what's what, oddly enough to introduce this out of, and we have every kind of stim machine and all the other tools that you, you can for, um, for clean up but the thing that's been the most healing to me even though it sounds strange is, is the Cossack whip and it's strange that you would pay somebody you know $150 to whip you <laughs> for an hour yeah but so much of what we were talking about um, um, about removing anxiety and, and certain through certain hallucinogens yes. the same thing happens happens post this work so uh, I'll give you a profound experience like you gave me earlier so the first time I had this done Michael Rabcook was coming from Russia and um, they were bringing their massage therapists and so we met in New York City we were training with the State Department but one of the big things was um, the, the, the Cossack whip, whip massage so I had that done for an hour straight um, and as much as I thought that I was, my movement patterns were smooth and I, you know, I was great at resisting strikes and stuff like that. It was actually horrible and, um, how much tension was inside my body. And most of it was psychological tension that was really manifested in the tissue. So very rigid. And I mean, when they hit me on the bottom of the feet with, uh, with the whip, I thought my soul came out on top of my head. I mean, the guy was standing on my back going, wow. you've got to trust me, Stephen, you've got to trust God. And they just basically beat the shit out of me. But the coming down portion of it, when all that heat and sweat started to dissipate, the level of tissue relaxation, like somebody could have come and broke a beer bottle over your head, you would have done nothing. And then post that, that night, like every two hours, this purging dreams and nightmares, these purging dreams and nightmares. And then when somebody saw you the next day, your facial structure changed to such a relaxed state. Um, and their argument was, is this is the state you should be fighting in. This is the state you should be approaching combat in. Um, and even though that seemed so strange because it was always about the escalation of violence to the highest point before, this was the first time I saw it even perform more devastatingly but in a relaxed state um, where it was under full control and I was completely impressed by both what they could do but by what that massage did to me I mean it got you know, 20 years of gunk starts to unfold in your head an hour. Over, over one thing like that it's, it's pretty profound work um, 
used to keep them in here, did some of that work on some of the people in here, but I but most people just the sight of it creates you know, they're going right down the Fifty Shades of Grey's line rather than um, understanding... Um, yeah, as a tool, how it can be used. How to heal, but also as a man, it teaches you. So there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, being pro-torture and stuff like that. But one thing I can tell you, and most people that know me know I'm pretty high threshold pain guy and stuff like that, is is um, under the right proper pain duress, you're going to talk. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's what it, that's what taught me. Like, oh, you believe under these circumstances that inside you. So they teach you great coping mechanisms to survive that stuff. But even in a high level therapeutic environment, it's difficult. So to imagine going through those stages is is um, is difficult. The other important thing I think that happened early on was they tied your hands up your feet up throw you in a tub and then you start having some water run and then you start to work using your gross motor skills what do you think okay this guy squats ate something he's got his 800 pound squats gonna push him right out the tub and you start doing that mm. and you're watching the water fill up more and more and more and you realize you have to crawl with your back up this it's all small movements that are gonna save your life you can't waste any energy and so I was grateful and profound for being able to be taken to like those levels of vulnerability and then realize, you know, even small things, so it's odd. The first six inches you can adjust to through breathing when your arms are tied. Interestingly enough, even though you have almost the same mobility in your shoulders, if that tie went all the way to your elbows, it starts to cut off your breathing more, even though there's no association with this sure. alone. So it taught me a lot about myself, like, oh my God, like just those couple more inches, it made you stop breathing. So, um, Deep, so deeply introspective, deeply. Yes, yes. And takes the tough guy bullshit out of you. Um, what I so I was never a fraternal guy besides playing football on a couple of teams like that. I was never a guys guy locker room want to hang out. One thing I'll say about what System was able to do, which I've never seen anybody else do it, is put a hundred and twenty or thirty guys in a camp for an entire week doing combat all day. And no bullshit. I, I can honestly say I've never seen that under any other circumstances of martial arts or athletics. Um, in my life. So that impressed me that these one or two dudes kept every motherfucker in here in check and not by ever really yelling or anything like that but they knew every single thing that was going on and so I was just impressed with the lifestyle. I have the Slavic background so yeah. then that started to create more and more interest in me and then I, for my 50th birthday I decided um, seven of us were invited to go to Moscow to go to the underground places that taught virgins of system and other things um, that no Westerners ever been. And so I just decided for some f foolish reason to get on a plane and go <laughs> meet dudes that I don't even know I've never met before um, and go train for a week. And I would say that that was um, a pretty profound experience. Um, hard work, deep training, but if one thing I liked about one thing I like about Russians is they don't bullshit anybody. But if if you have chops and you can hang, then they respect you right away, and they teach you as much as they can teach you. And so, I'm grateful for like all of those people. Like so many I couldn't even mention that have taught me so much. Um, even with the exchange of partners that happen so frequently at, at like a systemic camp, you're getting so much work over 150 different bodies over and over again with different sizes and different movement patterns and different abilities. So the, it's hard to, um, to describe like the, um, just the amount of information and ability that you were able to learn under those circumstances. Only now am I like vetting some of that out backwards, including even how troubled times are now where you're concerned about riots and stuff like that. I mean, we were, you know, you're taught for five years by a guy that has a PhD in combat psychology that has 150 working participants to start doing those mass escapes and the air pockets in those mass escapes. And so these guys were studying shit that I never even heard of anybody consider in an emergency. Yeah. And the, you know, and the Russians too. I mean, they have, they can take um, different liberties. We'll say yes. with training yes. and uh, you know experimentation. Um, I think it's. I I really love how you've taken the pieces to uh, and incorporated them into, you know, what you do today. And I think that's. I think that's so important. What do you, total totally switching gears? What do you think that? 
the male uh, archetype is in trouble today? Yeah. Do you think deeply? Do you think that archetype of being male that we talked about that toxic masculinity? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is where do we go from here to raise strong men that aren't afraid to be men? Well, just it's twofold to me. I mean, I think that strength comes in discretion and tenderness a lot. So it takes so you're you need to have role models that certainly can perform the archetypical masculine tasks that people expect. But at the same time, be able to show a level of tenderness and respect. Um, people, you, people, powerful people, strong people should use their power in the circumstances for good. Um, what I see too much in is that people have a little bit of more power than somebody and they immediately use it to suppress somebody that's much weaker. So when I was being brought up, like if you picked on somebody that was weak or disabled or um, helpless, like you would get beaten up for that as opposed mm. to now that's like the badge of courage that people are looking to build their egos. They're looking for somebody that they They're can suppress the someone. And so I, that disappoints me um, greatly. Even on the street, there was a there was almost a code. Oh, of, absolutely. Do not, you know, yeah. we, we'll work on our shit, right. but this person over here, no. Right. Well, the, the, you, you, bring, you bring a good point. I, I think somebody that came through the streets but then ended up in a fourth ring rich suburb has lots of different experiences and so I will agree with that like most of the way people carry themselves out here when I was growing up you would have only carried yourself a half a day in the inner city like that and it would have corrected itself not that somebody was going to completely bully you for it but the people that were bullying other people for no reason and causing harm for no reason um, you know, we're kind of taken care of even by the bad people. I think people are escaping that, um, and that's become the new power move from what I see, right? And now everybody watches MMA. Everybody watches pro sports. I think what's most indicative of it is if you go to a bar and you listen to uh, people watch pro sports, you know? So you watch the, um, the disrespect fall greater and greater and greater over time because people aren't performing to a level that you have no right to expect from somebody because it's unimaginable to you the capacity that that person has. Yes. Um, yes. And I listen to it all the time. If, if <clears throat> yeah. I was being paid X, if I had the uh -huh. incentive to do this, I would be doing this. No, you wouldn't. No. No, you wouldn't. You have no idea what's going on down there. This, And the, even the simple thing of watching something on television, they, people understand the speed of the game is slowed down on TV so you can watch it. You're not seeing what they see. You're not seeing the speed of it. So just that lack of reality ability allows people then to make crazy judgments about like fighting, um, MMA, combatives, what they would do in an emergent situation. Um, it's, um, you know, it's, we're in such a fake it till you make it society that there's a lot of people walking around faking being heroic, which is to me just a very dangerous um, and kind of ugly thing about society. You know, there's a handful of people that I think can can take care of certain situations in an emergent situation, the rest of the people should have some understanding of what their capacity is. Um, but it's lost its, you know, to me it's lost its way. It's a, it's a major disconnect. And I see that in, uh, I see that in this huge, uh, in the sports fan world, it's interesting. You know, I have people that I know that they can spew off, you know, who won what world record in this, and I'm thinking, but they have no idea, you know, they, their, but their family life is, is missing in this, or their work life, or their own health. Yep. And it's interesting to see that. They're putting a lot of effort into something, and I'm like, what's the payoff on this? Well, it's very strange to, to know all that information. I, so I'm still one of those guys. I'm from the other end. I think that the players are still vastly underpaid for what the system itself makes off of what they have to put out. Most people are going to go completely the other way and argue <laughs> yep. that. Yep. because And some of that is Buffalonian-based because we're here. So, yeah, you sign a $20 million contract in Buffalo. You're going to live yeah. pretty fucking yeah. well. Yeah. But when you tell people, like, you could sign that same contract if you go to New York, and 50 to 60% of your money's gone before you start, you make two mistakes. You're fucked. That's how people go broke doing that. You know, you need two or three contracts. And they also don't understand the preparation level um, and the pain threshold and the pain that people suffer. So 
many of these people that are making those comments on TV take Oxycontins to play nine holes of golf on the weekend, but have a yeah. huge pain threshold for somebody that's playing uh, in like in the NFL. Um, and has no understanding of what the contact forces really feel like down there. Um, so it's, it's, um, so I find it strange that, um, that that even happens. That to me is just such a mirror of everything that's going on in society. It's kind of like this, um, you know, parenting, this way of going through life where, you know, they're kind of in the back seat and they're just spewing stuff. They're not in it. They're not taking responsibility for it. And it's just an easy way. And that's where I think social media comes in because you can sit there on your chair and you can, you know, you can ridicule people and you can get on that. And I feel like that's just a mirror to kind of what's going on in society right now is that the truth is lost. Well, this, this is one of the words that bothers me. People are saying now, just be legendary. And when they say it to me, I'm like, dude, you can't be legendary until you're fucking dead. And it's other people that are going to tell you that you were legendary, not yourself. <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's, it's crazy. Legendary. And I hear people say that. Yep. Like, oh, no, 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 no. There's a handful of human beings that are legendary motherfuckers, basically, right? The, the rest of the people were like, you might have done some good things here and there, but you're not legendary. That's become a common term to attach to somebody that's doing kind of regular shit. And they're gonna it. get and and so for me I just um, it it's it's shocking that people have the ability to compare themselves in ways that they do, right? I always look at it this way. So we were lucky enough to um, total elite in powerlifting and could have been maybe the next tier. So you you become this guy that's like a fifteenth to number eight person in the United States. Wow, wow. But it's a but the but the three other dudes in there are really different people. Hmm. So yeah. you might get to number yeah. five, but you're not getting a three, two, and one. And so when you see that, that's the super elite. So I always looked at it that way. Most people would be pushing people, the rest of the people, the population down. But I always looked and said, "Yeah, dude, but you know, you squat eight ten that year, and the number, and you're number twelve, and the number one guy in your class squatted eleven hundred or ten or a thousand and ten. It's a big difference between an eight hundred ten pound squat and a thousand pound squat. You know, yes. so you realize like that's what's out there. Yeah. So yeah. I always compared myself to like knowing that those people are out there. You can't walk around like um, you're somebody superior. That said, now what I'm seeing though, the threshold is so low the other way that it's actually shocking to me. Like what people brag about what they've had the capacity to do uh, and what they do. And I think a lot of it is, is they, they stay in their own microcosms. One of the problems even here on a high school level is, is that there really isn't an integration. You know, you're not forced to play people outside your zone, so to speak, enough where your abilities are going to be tried by people with a higher athletic talent. Um, and so we get away with a lot of that, um, which I think it would be more consolidated. Like, you just imagine what would happen, to, and people will yell at this, but imagine what would happen to football programs if you just had, like, one program in the four schools within a certain suburb, right? Yeah. Yep. So now you're going to carry 80 and 200 people are going to try out. Most of the people that are playing some of those sports wouldn't be playing. And I'm not saying that that's a, that's the, but that, a that super is... fair way, but they would get an understanding of what even it's like playing in another state where the stakes are that high. How about they would get an understanding of what it's like to be in the workforce? Yes. It's, yes. you know, this, we're afraid of stress. Right. But that fear of stress is causing distress. No doubt about it. You know, it's like no we're afraid of any type of, uh, you know, any ability to handle handle our shit. We're afraid of any type of uh, uh, outer stress, but it's building anxiety in people and it's building more distress. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, one of the things from an athletic standpoint, and some people argue with me, I think when you're very young, from a tactile standpoint, you need to play as many different things as possible. But in my opinion, and you may believe otherwise, and a lot of other coaches do, but they make these miscorrelations. So what they'll start to tell young kids very early on is, is this guy that played in the NFL played three other sports during high school. And so now they're trying to convince most kids. So you know if you're playing three or four sports in high school, you're also playing an outside addendum season. So, so you're basically playing eight seasons um, in a year if you do travel for those yeah. things. Yeah. So it's, it's too much. Yeah. And some of the correlative stuff, they, 
a lot of times you're looking at somebody that was super elite from the time they were a little kid. They didn't have to play baseball from the time they were a little kid to be able to make their high school baseball team and make a big impact, even though they were a fantastic football player. It's the same thing with basketball and things. Their athleticism was that large. That doesn't mean that the pathway to athletic success is to take every kid and put him in every single thing he can do right up to the end of the high school season. Yeah. So I, I am a believer in, at a certain point, you become a specialist. I think when I was in high school, there was maybe two or three three-sport guys, maybe eight two-sport guys, but most of the people specialized. And even how football is conducted in this country, if you go deep south, you're finding people, really football becomes a full-time job year-round. For sure, for sure. So what I notice here differently is is you watch people's skill set. It's like the combination of um, wrestling and football, which is often preached here. If you're a heavyweight lineman, it's fine. But if you're a football player and then you have to drop 30 pounds in the offseason to wrestle and then try to put that same 30 pounds of yeah. strength back on yeah. to go back and play football, you're kind of chasing your tail and you're really loose. So I'm against all that wear and tear and erosion. I mean, it's very common, and I don't know what you see in your practice, but on the regular, people bring 11- and 12-year-old people and you have no problem with those kids having orthopedic surgery at that age. And, oh, and yeah. to me, that's shocking. Oh, no, it's shocking. No, no, no. Too much overuse. Yeah, um, I, I, I have that. They're overused, they're underdeveloped, and they're over-medicated. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt I mean, that's, that's, a whole, that's a whole different podcast, but um, that is so true. And just developing that base stuff, I think, is, uh, is such an important piece. So tell me, so in 10 years when I come back and we talk again, where, what's, what's primordial going to be like? Where do, you, where do you want it to evolve? So I hope that... We're not evolve. Well, no. So in this regard, I, I do want some things to evolve on a very high level and some things. So the privatization of the facility itself, I think it will always just be more of like a high-end restaurant service of those people you get. You want to retain your clients for a long time. I don't think that, um, you know, at a, at a certain age, you're going to be able to do the same number of volume of appointments. As far as the whole system is concerned... My hope is is that the research that we've done is accepted to, for, for a PhD and the thesis is accepted. If it's not the compendium of the textbook that's put together and it's about 85% done and 4,000 pages, then I hope that then we can take that and I can at least teach some of that on the college level and that will balance out um, the academic aspects and the business aspects of what I'm doing. And then I have all of the um, lifestyle sites. So now we don't want to isolate the training so much as, okay, so what, um, where would the primordial man buy his leather jacket from? I love jeans? it. I follow that. So, so I have all of those websites, haven't fully developed them, but the last year we've been acquiring a lot of uh, product line. Um, and it's not so much based purely for the monetization of stuff. It's just I like some weird, obscure, eclectic yeah. stuff. I really like what what somebody would probably consider like industrial opulence, if there can be such a thing. So that's just our niche, um, and we would like all of those things to develop. I hope we would have further impact um, in the concussion market. I think for a minute there was a lot of discussion. Um, have a lot of information about about neck training and the dissipation of contact force and looking at the fibering of the tissue and what tissue dissipates contact force best. I think we've gotten far away from that. We've moved to rule changes. We've moved mm. to some equipment yeah. changes. Yeah. Yeah. We have not gone back to taking a close look. I'm still shocked that most football players I see still do not do any of that kind of training. That's a can. That's a whole can of worms. Right. And, and, they don't want to dig that grave. I totally understand it. So at the beginning, I was um, one of the inaugural ambassadors to the Sports Legacy Institute who... Basically, their studies found it's found CTE. So for a minute, it looked like they were really going to start penetrating local communities mm. where people like myself would go to Little Loop football teams, start to integrate certain best practices. Um, but it got farther and farther away. And the truth the truth is there's always more money in products than there is in, ch- in training changes, right? Of course. So they're going to always chase that. So I wish, so I hope in my lifetime I would see that that, be taken more seriously and at least be looked at um, you know we've certainly from an anecdotal standpoint over 14 years proven that m- most of those things combined together have a significant impact on injury reduction the problem is most people you know don't want to put those uh, protocols into place yeah that's a, <clears throat> that's definitely something I think um, is so widespread and uh, but you know 
one person that you helped that you could have helped, I think, is it was all worth it when it comes to that. Oh. One, young one athlete, you know, one Ab- young athlete. Absolutely. And tell me a little bit about your uh, acting. Yeah, so just had the good fortune. Of, so always been a dream. I, we wrote a couple plays in grammar school. Always been a dream of mine. My anxiety have always kept me from getting in the way of ever fucking pursuing something like that. Yeah. Somebody solicited me to send photos in. I sent photos in of me dressed in what I would normally wear. Leather jackets and your tie, typical rings. Um, and oddly enough, how weird this was, I, I was randomly picked out of thousands of fucking photographs. So you play the part. I had no idea who would be in it. I didn't realize that I would be playing Michael Madsen's bodyguard and something like that. Yeah, yeah. It looks so it looks like it's being picked up. I imagine we're a year out, but um, the people are saying that basically they can't wait for us to actually see. Hey everyone, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Steve. Uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, like I said, the end got cut out a little bit, so if you want to find Steve. Uh, find him at Primordial One on Instagram, PrimordialStrengthSystems.com. Uh, a couple quick, simple Google searches, and you'll have them in the palm of your hands. I'll also link all of his information into today's show notes. So thank you all again. I hope everyone stays in the light. Um, I hope everyone focuses on their breathing, on their health, on their well-being. Laugh, have fun with your family, enjoy your friends. And uh, have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in.